for me, there was a cognitive shift around what motivates people to do justice work. Usually the question is, what keeps you up at night? Sort of the Tikkun Olam model of where's the broken? And this was bringing my attention to think about where's our gratitude and how can we leverage our gratitude as a motivator for change. by Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you today to Hashivenu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. I'm so happy to welcome Rabbi Alex Weissman. Alex is a uh, Reconstructionist rabbi. He's a 2017 graduate of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, and he works as the senior Jewish educator at the Brown RISD Hillel. And um, he's been, I think, a really important thinker and teacher for some of our projects here in the Reconstructionist movement. And I'm excited to talk with him today and to shine some light on, on his really lovely and important teachings um, in general and how they relate to a consideration of resilience. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Deborah. Honored to be in conversation with you. Always. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Um, where I want to begin is with uh, an amazing essay that you wrote for our project Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations. Evolve is a project that tries to, you know, address um, in terms of content really uh, challenging and important topics of our day from a Jewish perspective with a Reconstructionist lens on it. And also beyond the content in, its, in, the, in the process tries to do so in ways that foster brave conversations on these challenging topics, forthright conversations that are also deeply respectful, grounded in Jewish values, and um, with the goal of staying in community together, even as we have these conversations. And Alex, you, you wrote this amazing essay for our consideration, the, the, the grounding essay and a series of essays and resources on thoughts about justice from a Jewish perspective that you titled um, Hallelujah. Uh, and it, it contains a loving, somewhat critique and also alternative to uh, a phrase that is so essential to um, to liberal Jews today, tikkun olam. And so, I'd love to to start there with um, the 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 premise of and the core insights of the Hallelujah essay. Sure. So I'd say I started thinking about um, what I wrote about in the Hallelujah essay. Um, what was it? Two thousand seven. So I was living in New York at the time. Um, and was very involved with Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. Um, we were organizing on the Shalom Bayit Justice for Domestic Workers campaign, so trying to pass a Domestic Workers Bill of Rights in New York State. We ended up passing it. It was the first of the kind in this country. It's very exciting. Mm -hmm. But along the way, part of our work was to organize employers of domestic workers. So we worked with an organization, Domestic Workers United. They were the ones organizing domestic workers. And we were the ones saying, employers also um, support this bill. And when I spoke with employers, um, and I quote one at the beginning of the essay, Donna Schneiderman, um, who was a, um, a co-chair of the campaign, a central leader, um, what I found was the overwhelming gratitude that she and other employers felt for their domestic workers. So these employers were bringing people into their homes, paying them to work and care for them the most important things in somebody's life, um, family, home, 
oneself. Um, and the gratitude that these employers expressed when they spoke about their employees, about these domestic workers was so overwhelming that for me, there was a cognitive shift around what motivates people to do justice work. Usually the question is in organizing language, what keeps you up at night? Um, sort of the focus on the brokenness, the anxiety, the pain, sort of the tikkun olam model of where's the broken. Um, and this was bringing my attention to think about where's our gratitude and how can we leverage our gratitude as a motivator for change. I just love that. I mean, that I, I, I've heard many times stand, what you call a standard question about what keeps you up at night and that shift to what gets you up in the morning, I think is deeply in alignment with the cultivation of resilience and it shifts everything. And because, uh, you know, I, there is that powerful teaching, you know, from social sciences backed up by tons of data that our brains and our psyches, what we give our attention to increases. Um, so what it means if we shift over from that place of brokenness um, and not to deny it, not mm -hmm. to bury it uh, or erase it, but to put the bulk of our energies more toward something that is more life-sustaining, more nurturing. Yeah, and our, our tradition encourages us to do that from the second we wake up. Yeah. I was just listening to your interview with Rabbi Jessica Rosenberg, and she was talking about the embodied practice of saying moda ani, the um, gratitude prayer, as soon as we wake up before we get out of bed. Um, so the, the very first words that are supposed to come out of our mouths in the morning is an expression of gratitude. Um, and if that can be a guiding force for us in our daily life, in our commitment to justice, what are the possibilities that open up from that? I think, though, in the essay, you're really like you're you're muscular. You have this. I'll, I'll read you back to yourself. Um, by focusing on our suffering, we risk exactly that. Focusing on our suffering, we risk being self-centered, exclusively self-protective, and lacking compassion for others. The ancient rabbis and our tradition demand more of us. They demand hallelujah. So I, I love that language that you use, like how you know imperative you know you were, how you mandated it. So. I think that's right. That, but I, I uh, you know, that living beyond or in relation to, rather than bound by a halachic system that would mandate the hundred blessings a day, it does take a, um, you know, it 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 means we have to really uh, we there we have to be responsive to that demand in in different and I think more intentional ways. Yeah, it's easy to stay in the the pain and the suffering. Um, I don't mean that in a dismissive way and that it's easy, but psychologically, we're more inclined to think about what's bad in our life. Um, psychologists talk about negativity bias. Um, and, you know, certainly uh, there have been moments in my life when grappling with homophobia and heterosexism that it's easier to only think about that and the ways in which... Um, I've been oppressed and I have suffered and those are important things and have been motivating for me in my pursuit of justice. And also I'm incredibly privileged and blessed in my life. And if I don't acknowledge that, that's dishonest and not sustaining. It's not integrated and I can be caught in self-pity. Yeah. I'm thinking about white privilege as you talk about that. And, um, and you talk about how, if we are both grateful and intentionally political about it, that can help us to, you know, be mindful of the ways that it can 
slide into complicity and so that we can monitor it and activate it for empathy and activism rather than just for reinforcement of privilege. Yeah. And I'll say the times that I've taught some of this material, that's often where I get the pushback Mm -hmm. is around feeling gratitude for privilege because that's such a foreign concept. Um, Right. Like I don't feel grateful that there's white supremacy in the world. Mm -hmm. That's something I feel deeply sad and afraid about. And I'm deeply grateful that when I walk down the street, I don't need to be afraid of police officers. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't like where it comes from, but I'm grateful that that's my experience. And I think everybody should have that experience. Right. Right. So how to, that's exactly right. How to, um, universalize it rather than just reinforce it for, for those of us who have that kind of, um, that kind of comfort and ease and a lack of self-consciousness. I hope that everyone listening will feel moved to read the essay because I think it's an incredibly, you know, it's just lovely writing with really important teaching. And we'll put a link to the essay on the notes for for this episode. I know that you try to uh, bring it to life and raise it up. Um, can you talk about some of the ways that you try to move from the the powerful teaching and the grounding theory into practice? Sure. So in my first year of rabbinical school, I was in class with Rabbi Vivi Meyer. Uh, we were studying the Haggadah, and we were studying the Mishnah, sort of the early articulation of the Passover Seder. Um, and I was really struck by the line, um, mm-hmm. In each and every generation, a person is obligated to see oneself as if they emerged from Egypt which to me seemed so foreign from my life experience. Um, yes, as I said, like there have been hard moments in my life, but um, the idea of seeing myself as if I actually went out of Egypt felt very hard and foreign to me. In my last year of rabbinical school, I had an internship um, at Brandeis University with the Brandeis Reconstructionist Organization, the uh, mighty Reconstructionist Minion at Brandeis, um, and I was there for the Shabbat. I don't remember if it was right before or right after the most recent presidential inauguration. Mm. Um, and it felt like a real moment of uncertainty and fear. And I wanted to be able to talk about that without talking about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, knowing that most likely there are some mixed feelings in the room. I think the room certainly leans left, but I didn't know for sure. So I thought a way in was to go deeper into the story itself. Um, so instead of writing a traditional Devar Torah, I wrote a guided meditation um, that was inspired by one of my favorite uh, authors, Lori Moore, um, who writes beautiful fiction. Um, and in her, her first collection of um, short stories called Self-Help, many of the stories are in second person. So I decided to write this meditation in second person as a way for us to really see ourselves as if we went out of Mitzrayim and offer that as a way to uh, encounter the uncertainty of the moment and going deeper into the story itself. And um, how was it received? Did you you get feedback on it? I think people found it powerful. Um, I shared it at my Seder last year too. One thing I didn't expect from it was it also brought up associations of the Holocaust um, Mm. as another moment Mm. of fleeing persecution, Mm -hmm. uh, unsafety, fear. So again, even though it was about this ancient story, it still had these 
modern resonances in people's life without any explicit mention. I think that is part of the teachings that we learn from trauma is that it, things get layered on. And certainly in, it's a part of our personal histories and that's part of Jewish history. I think a lot about Tisha B'Av in relation to Yom HaShoah, in relation to the Holocaust Memorial Day. So Tisha B'Av, the 9th of Av was the, you know, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, was the date that... Uh, the first temple was destroyed, and then somehow, uh, it seems, according to Jewish storytelling, the second temple was destroyed. And when we mark those cataclysms, um, other cataclysmic losses, other catastrophes were marked for generations, for centuries on that day, that, that the, the ninth of Av, which is a, it's in the middle of the summer. It's, a, you know, kids who went to summer camp tend to know a lot about the ninth of Av and f- folks whose Jewish uh, experiences, either more synagogue-based or or more secular, tend to know very little about it. But in the Jewish imagination, it uh, um, it became this both this like telescoping in and telescoping out of catastrophe and loss. Um, and um, there was some debate when the Holocaust Memorial Day was established whether it should be on its own or layered into the this. Um, collective day of recovery from trauma. And I think, and, and, and there's, there's much more to say about the timing of Holocaust Memorial Day. We won't get into it, but I think a lot about that whenever I think about how dwelling on one, one trauma, how, how it can awake other traumas, whether they're collective or whether they're individual and that we have to, you know, that's, that's the whole point I think behind trigger warnings and everything, but how to be capacious about it and prepared for surprises, as you said, and, um, and prepared for, for grief prepared for grief. And I think it matters so much how we tell those stories. Mm-hmm. We're thinking about the Passover story. Yes, enslavement is part of that story. And so is redemption and liberation. So to go back to what we were talking about earlier about what do we what we give our attention to grows. In Torah, we're reminded again and again, and this is cited uh, frequently for good reason, Jonah Cross the Stranger, for you are strangers in Egypt. So calling on that experience of suffering as a motivator for compassion, for treating others well. And then the rabbis and the Mishnah and liturgy, I think generally focused less on that and more on the experience of liberation itself, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to see oneself as if you went out of Egypt. It's not to see oneself as if you are a slave um, or you are living in Egypt, but it's to see yourself as if you were liberated. Right. And um, that there are obligations that arise from that, I think. Um, and the first and foremost in the traditional Jewish imagination is we were not liberated just to be free. We were liberated to go and serve the divine. We were liberated to march our way to Sinai, um, to receive the Torah, um, and to be in a covenantal relationship with this God. Um, yeah. And more generally, I think we were, we, I think those reminders so much are about um, demanding not only action, but also empathy, that the, that the action that we take is one of empathy with others. And that's, um, I think of that as, as such a core teaching of Judaism, that it, that it is about empathetic action. And I think one of the things I I get, um, I'm aware of as someone who, who likes ritual, likes, uh, prayer, goes to synagogue, lives much of my life according to Jewish time. I'm aware of how much this remembrance of the redemption, not the slavery, but the redemption is embedded into the daily life. That it's like in t- twice a day, if you're praying twice a day, there's this reflection on 
how we were redeemed and how we need to be working toward the next redemption. And that, that's messianic in the in the liturgy, but it's also, it's not hard to translate it into what happens day to day. And in the Kiddush for Sh- Shabbat on Friday night, when we bless the wine, there's a raising up both of creation and redemption, almost as if the redemption is embedded into creation. So it is, you're right that even as we have um, the Exodus narrative is so embedded, the, the major points are so much more about the, uh, about the redemption than about the oppression. Yeah, at pretty much every single holiday, most holidays, I should say, um, are described as Zecher Lutziah Mitzrayim, mm-hmm. as a remembrance of the Exodus from Egypt. Um, it's in Festival Kiddush in addition to Shabbat yeah, Kiddush. Yeah. So we say it all the time. Yeah. So I, I think what I want to ask you, Alex, um, you talked about how you came to this guided meditation when you were working on a college campus. And I'm just wondering about that setting. Are there particular sensibilities that you bring to your teachings or are there particular insights that you've gleaned from working with college-age students? Um. One of the things I find myself teaching often um, is about chesed, um, is about loving kindness. In my last year at the Reconstruction Shabbat College, I took a class with Rabbi Jacob Staub um, called the Midav Chesed, the um, spiritual quality of loving kindness. And we studied the teachings of Rabbi Shlomo Wolby, who was a um, 20th century German and then Israeli rabbi who taught about chesed. And I've taught this in a semester-long class. Um, I, I do this in small groups and individually with students. Um, and I think invariably having clear spiritual practice that is about grounding oneself in values and traits that they want to, students want to embody in the world is really appealing and transformative. The, the very first practice um, that Shlomo Wolby offers is a few times a day, think about what the person in front of you needs. I think this isn't the kind of Jewish practice that is legible to most people as Jewish practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when people, you know, it's not Shabbat, it's not kashrut, Mm -hmm. it's not davening, um, but it's grounded in Jewish story and Jewish teaching. And I think this is what students largely are looking for, is how to be the best versions of themselves they can be. Um, in this incredibly tumultuous and stressful time in their lives. I've heard students talk about how these practices are helpful with anxiety um, Mm -hmm. instead of being caught up in their own concerns about what's happening in a moment or what somebody else is thinking of them. They have a practice that's, okay, what what does this person in front of me need? Um, And it helps them relax and gives their, their mind something to do that is good for the person in front of them and good for them. I'm so struck. I mean, I, I say often that the reason I'm Jewish is not to be the best Jew, but because I think Judaism teaches me a lot about how to be the best human and the best citizen of the planet. Um, and that interconnectivity that we were just talking about, both in terms of redemption, Gilah, and also now you're grounding it in this chesed practice, this loving kindness practice. I think it's so important. I mean, for me, it seems like such a powerful alternative. I won't say corrective, but alternative to the hyper-individualism that I see 
you know, so rampant around us. And that just that's only fueled by not just capitalism and consumerism, but also by social media and curated profiles and Instagram. And so. And I think the way our culture of education works is very much about an individual's success. Mm -hmm. Right? We don't, we don't think about success in education that like my job as a student in a classroom is for all of us to learn well and grow. Right. It's like, how do I say the smartest thing? How do I get the A? Yeah. Uh, But this practice, I think potentially has the possibility to reshape the experience of the classroom where we're actually thinking about others' needs um, as students and as humans, as co-learners and reframes what educational success looks like. Mm -hmm. And what talk about if part of education is about life preparation, what phenomenal preparation for building just and caring communities. And I, I, I'm really struck by the, um, the antidote to anxiety. Uh, and and um, it's almost like cognitive behavioral therapy. Like here mm. is a practice that you like when you feel like you are going in this particular direction, here is, uh, it sounds it's like a Musar practice. Here's an ethical practice that you can do that will, as, as we were talking about, switch your energy from one place to another. Yeah, I um, didn't expect that uh, to come from my students, but in teaching it multiple times to multiple students, different contexts, it's come up again and again. So it's been a, a surprising byproduct. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, after after we meet and talk, I'll be meeting with two students um, to teach this mm-hmm. uh, for final session of the school year. Um, and I got an email from one of them last week. Um, she's a student at RISD. She mm-hmm. makes art. Um, and the practice that we're in right now is about welcoming guests. And um, we talked about what that means when you're a college student and how can you be a host in a, at, when you're in college. Um, and she said she's getting ready for sort of her final presentations of her artwork. Um, and it's inspired by, by different Jewish teachings. And she was feeling shy about offering that to a largely non-Jewish audience and how to talk about Judaism publicly. And she said that when she started to think about all of them as guests in this space, it suddenly shifted her experience um, and her her anxiety. She became less anxious. She felt more comfortable talking about how her art was inspired by Judaism, by her Jewish values, um, and just reshaped her relationship to her peers. Mm, It's an amazing story. And I, I hope she'll... I hope someday to be able to see her art. That's just, it's a great place for us to wind down. I think it's so rich. I I guess the theme I see from some of what we're talking about is like paying attention to grounding metaphors and honoring all of them and choosing to raise up some of them in ways that they can, you know, bolster us and offer up lenses that help us, as you said, to be our best selves. And that's not just their college students. I think it's all of us. So... Thank you so much for this conversation and for your writing and your thinking. I'm so um, interested in in what comes next. Thank you, Deborah. It's a pleasure to talk with you as always. Um, my guest today is Rabbi Alex Weissman, who is the senior Jewish educator uh, at Brown RISD Hillel. I want to thank him for this wonderful discussion, and there will, we will post some resources um, from the really rich conversation that we had. Um, on our website, hashivenu.fireside.fm. And as always, you can find more resources on ritualwell.org or on reconstructingjudaism.org. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening to Hashivenu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. Hashivenu.
Champagne, new, I do.